Father, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Father, that joy can be in our hearts even in the midst of sorrow and difficulty. And I'm so grateful how we've seen that exhibited in, in many, even in our own class, who have been through hard times. And yet the joy of the Lord is there. The peace of God reigns supreme. The peace of God is the order of the universe. Lord, help us just to receive that peace that you give each and every day. And Father, I pray that our strength will be drawn from the hand of God and that we will not rely on our own strength, that we will not trust in the things that the world might provide, but realizing that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, no shadow of turning. We're so grateful, Lord, that you are faithful to us each and every day and that you are right here now in our midst and your purpose is to touch each of our lives, not a single one of us, to be exempt from the working of your Spirit. And I pray that your Word will be the tool that you will use to change our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires, and to mold us more into the image of Christ. I ask that wherever thy word is, your Word is being proclaimed this morning, uh, throughout this country, in the city of Reading, and certainly here on this campus, that your Spirit will be at work and lives will be changed, and the kingdom of God will be advanced. In Jesus' great name, amen. It's interesting, um, Gordon uh, brought this, and you may have seen this in the May 29th edition of the uh, record Searchlight, but it has a picture here of uh, a heifer, 10-month-old red heifer, in Kafar Hasidim in northern Israel. It says, red heifer might be Israeli sign. Some fear extremists may interpret Melody's birth, that's the name of the red heifer, Melody, as a sign to rebuild the temple on the site that houses some of the holiest shrines of Islam, which, as you know, is the Temple Mount, right in the middle of which is the uh, Dome of the Rock, which was built in the 7th century by one of the uh, caliphs by the name of Omar, and then also the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the um, south side of the Temple Mount, and that is considered to be one of the holiest of all the mosques in Islam. And, you know, under the Dome of the Rock is this big rock upon which supposedly Abraham uh, sacrificed Isaac, and it has a, what's said to be a footprint in it. And that was supposed to be Muhammad's footprint on that glorious night when he came from Mecca by horse in the middle of the night and came to the rock, and then from that went up to heaven, came back to the rock, and went back to Mecca, all in one night, of course. So it's a, it's a very holy area. So any, anybody who might have any designs on that is uh, going to create a great deal of trouble. But the article says, Some claim that she is a harbinger of the Messiah. Some call for her destructions. Others find the attention she is getting ridiculous, which is probably where it all belongs. Ten-month-old Melody, believed to be the first red heifer born in the Holy Land in two millennia, seems happy just lying around in the shade. But the debate over her theological import is one of the most bizarre signs of the growing rupture between religious and secular Israelis. The red heifer is one of the most important signs that we are living in a special time, said Gershon Solomon, head of the group dedicated to rebuilding the ancient Jewish temple destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. In ancient times, now he makes a, a wrong statement here. In ancient times, the ashes of the red heifer were mixed with spring water to purify high priests before they entered the temple. Well, we've been reading the chapter. That's not what it says. There are, but you have to remember that um, 
much of what Scripture has, has teaches has been modified over the centuries by the rabbis and made to say things it doesn't really say or expanded beyond what the Scripture really teaches. There are fears that some extremist groups might interpret Melody's birth as a sign of the time that the time is right to rebuild the temple on the site that now houses the holy shrines of Islam. Asked whether his group advocated that, Solomon said, would say only that he believed the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque could be dismantled and moved to Mecca, a move that could hurt, if not destroy, prospects for regional peace. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> That's a politically correct way of interpreting it. Yes. Well, you, as you probably also know, if you get U.S. news, there was an article telling about the Haradim, the um, people in Israel who are the, committed to only the study of Scripture, and that's what their life is all about. And it's, it, the article tells us that 6 to 8% of, of the Jews in Israel today are these people who are committed to studying the Scripture, and that's all they do. They do no other work. That those families make up 45% of the welfare role in Israel, although they're only 8% of the population. And, you know, the... the they were telling about one family. Here's the father and the mother. They have eight children. And all, he, all, all day long he goes to the yeshiva to study, and that's his work. That's all. Does nothing to earn any income. And the wife thinks that's fine. The kids think that's fine. The problem is that Herodim believed that all of the sons ought to do this, which is not what used to be believed. It was only the, the most likely son who would follow in that. The rest would go out and do normal work. But now it's gotten to be a... Uh, a, a kind of a social thing amongst them, and as a result, they're willing to accept the state as long as the state pays their bills. So there's a lot of tragedy going on over there, a lot of totally messed up theology, and that's the way it is when you've rejected Messiah and, and the truth of the Word. So let's look at the Word and see what it really says about the red heifer again. Chapter 19, we began looking at the story of the red heifer last Sunday. Chapter 19 of Numbers, Numbers 19. I'd like to read the first 10 verses again. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, its refuse, with its refuse, shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes, clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove, remove impurity it is purification from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. As I noted last week, this is a really unusual account, 
a really unusual ceremony. Uh, compared to those that we read about in Leviticus, particularly the first 10 or so chapters of Leviticus, where the different sacrifices were ordered and, and, and the uh, rituals were developed that would go along with them, this, this differs in many ways. And that was what we were talking about at the end of class last time. First of all, we noted that this sacrifice was to be red. And, of course, this article talks about a red heifer. No other sacrifice was the color ever designated. It didn't say it was to be black or it was to be white or brown or purple or any other color. But this one is specifically to be red. And we noted last week that a couple of reasons probably. Red is a very unusual color, as they have uh, uh, noted here, for uh, a heifer. And also probably because that, that color most closely, of course, is parallel to the color of blood for the sacrifice. The sex is totally different. Uh, all other sacrifices, if the sex is named, were to be male. In this particular sacrifice, it was to be a female. The only one designated to be a female. And I noted last week that probably this was because the female is the life bearer. And life is the antidote of death. The, the answer to death is life. I don't know if you uh, listen, how many of you listened to Luther, uh, Lutzer this morning. Lutzer, Luther is fine too, but I was thinking of <laughs> Lutzer in particular. <clears throat> and he, he, he was reading from, uh, his, his daughter just graduated from high school and somebody gave her a politically correct dictionary. And he was reading the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and he was talking about some of the politically correct terms that are used. And, you know, he, they fell down dead, you know. And he said, now, what can they say for dead? You know, that's politically correct. And it was uh, terminally inconvenienced. <laughs> terminally inconvenienced. I don't know who lays awake trying to figure these things out, but... They could probably find something better to do. Study the scripture. That would be very much better than, than that. The condition. We noted the condition. The condition was like other offerings in that it was to be a perfect animal, an animal without blemish, with all legs the same length, you know, and uh, this kind of thing. But there was one unusual factor, and that is this particular uh, red heifer was never to have done any work. There never was to have been a yoke on this animal. Now, in the case of others, there is no comment made as to whether the animal had done any work. Of course, if it's a lamb that's being sacrificed, a well, lamb hasn't done any work. It's just a lamb. But in this case, it was specifically not to have uh, been used in, in any way for work, to therefore not reduce its vitality or uh, exhaust it in any way. And then last, and fourthly, I emphasize the place. Where were the sacrifices to be made? You go through Leviticus. Where were the sacrifices to be made? On the brazen altar in front of the tabernacle entrance. Where was this made? Outside the camp. Completely outside the camp. Not even within the framework of the outer tents of, of the camp. Outside the camp, this sacrifice was to be made. And that seems to symbolize the fact that uncleanness was to be removed from Israel completely outside. As I mentioned last time in the scripture, you and I all know so well, our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And then lastly, the ritual. And this, this is where we uh, pick up again today. 
The, the ritual differs significantly from the ritual involving other sacrifices that were made by the Israelites in the case of the red heifer. The sacrifices that were normally made on the brazen altar, the priest would identify with the sacrifice. He would put his hand on the head of the sacrifice, this identification, the passing of the sin, as it were, from the person to the animal. But in this case, the priest does not touch the heifer other than after it is slain, taking a little of its blood and sprinkling it with his fingers seven times towards the tabernacle, apparently uh, simply implying that it, this is all done in accordance with the will and purpose of God and acknowledging the sovereignty of God. So th this was done differently. And in the case of the other sacrifices, you'll notice they're usually skinned, certain parts are washed, only certain parts are burned, certain parts are reserved for the priest to eat. In the case of the red heifer, the entire animal, horns, teeth, tail, even says refuse, the whole thing is burned. The entire animal is burned. And not only that, into the fire will be tossed hyssop and scarlet material and cedar, which we read from Leviticus 14 last time. These were all items that are associated with cleanness, with sacrifice towards cleanness. And so it was kind of like an emphasizing of the fact that this sacrifice was being made for purification. In verses 7 through 10, we discover that unlike the other sacrifices, at least specified in the other sacrifices, both the high priest who sprinkled the blood towards the tabernacle and the priestly helper who burned the animal, slew the animal, put it on the uh, fire, burned the animal up, and the one who carried the ashes away were told every one of these three persons was ritually unclean from contact with that heifer. The priest who had touched the blood, the helper who had killed it, and the one who carried the way, away the ashes. We're told that neither the priest, the high priest who sprinkled the blood, nor the helper who burned the animal could carry away the ashes because they were ceremonially unclean. An untainted third person had to come along, somebody who was clean, and take those ashes and put it in a clean repository outside the camp, and then he was unclean for having done that. Matthew Henry makes this statement. He says, all those that were employed in this service were made ceremonially unclean by it. Even Eliezer himself, though he did but sprinkle the blood. All the sacrifices which were offered for sin were therefore looked upon as impure, because the sin of men were laid upon them, our, as our sins were upon Christ, who therefore is said to have been made sin for us. Sometimes we may not spend much time thinking about why it was that the Father turned his back on the Son. Momentarily as it may have been, why did the Father turn his back on the Son? Because Jesus was made sin for us. Suddenly he was covered with the sin of the entire human race. And so the sacrifice is symbolic of that, carrying the sin of mankind, of, of, the, Israel, of the Israelites. As we're going to see as we read on in a moment here, 
The ashes were to be put in a place that had been properly prepared to be the repository for these ashes. And then they would be dipped into and mixed with water. And then that water was to be sprinkled on those who were unclean because, and objects who were unclean, because they had come in contact with a dead body. This ritual is described by Josephus in his writings. Now, if you're not familiar with Josephus, Flavius Josephus was a man who was of the priestly class who lived in Israel in the first century. And he had been one of the defenders against the Romans in the war between the Romans and the Jews that broke out in 66 and ended in 73. And in the midst of which the temple of Jerusalem was totally flattened and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. But he went over to the Romans in the midst of it all and became kind of an advisor to uh, Titus. Well, actually, first of all, to Vespasian, who was the commander of the Roman armies there at the time of the, of the war, uh, who then went on to become emperor of Rome in 79, I mean, in, in 69, but uh, he died in 79. Ves, uh, Josephus wrote in, in defense of the fact that he was accused of being a traitor because he had spoken for the Romans to his people saying, lay down your arms, there's no use resisting the Romans, you can't beat them. His people called him a traitor. And in an attempt to defend himself and to defend who he was even in Italy where he moved eventually to be with the emperor who had sort of adopted him, he wrote the antiquities of the Jews and the wars of the Jews. And in the antiquities of the Jews he takes in effect the Old Testament much of it anyway, and he paraphrases it, but he adds little insights here and there and little bits of information. And relative to this particular passage, he says, when therefore any persons were defiled by a dead body, they put a little of these ashes into spring water with hyssop, and dipping part of these ashes into it, they sprinkled them with it, both on the third day and on the seventh day. And after that, they were clean. This he enjoined, meaning Moses, uh, them to do also when the tribes should come into their own land. In other words, it was a perpetual ritual that was to be carried on. It wasn't just for the moment while they were there. It was to be an ongoing matter. Well, let's look at uh, verses 11 through 13 of Numbers 19. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day and then he shall be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he shall not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean and his uncleanness is still on him. When we go to the next passage, we may discover that there possibly was a, a pathogenic purpose behind uh, some of this law. But in this particular passage, the only reference here is to ceremonial impurity. Now, you and I don't have much concept of that, probably. The closest thing, I suppose, is when a Catholic goes through and takes a little holy water and sprinkles it on him, kind of, you know, purifying yourself a little bit. But, but in the Protestant church, we don't have this concept of ceremonial impurity because we don't put a big emphasis on ceremony. But, but God set this up for Israel for very specific purposes. They didn't have the whole word of God yet. They didn't have all the teaching that we would have. Uh, they are, they're, uh, 
they're living a life that is very much ordered day by day in, in its similarity. So ceremony kind of fit in. And as I've tried to emphasize before and will be emphasizing here again, God does this for a specific reason. It's not because God's a big lover of ceremony. Boy, I want to make sure you do all these ceremonies, and if you goof up this little ceremony, I'm going to zap you with a thunderbolt. Now, that's what Zeus would do, but that's not what Jehovah would do. What we have to understand here is God is trying to underscore truth. God is trying to drive deep into the heart of Israel, of the Israelite people, that how you live this life right now is of eternal importance. And if you don't live this life in accordance with God's ways now, you have no other hope. As I mentioned last time, there is no purgatory. There's no intermediate place you can go and get it right once you're dead. And that's you know, it's really sad because we live in a society that's shot through with that. They may not call it purgatory, they call it reincarnation, or they call it something else. You know, all this new age baloney that, that's floating around that, that causes people to not be concerned about the fact they're dying. Because they don't believe in hell. They believe that after death there, there is something else, but it isn't going to be bad. This is the devil's lie. I mean, he loves to convince people that it's all okay, just live like I want you to live now, and it'll be okay. You know, if there is a God up there, he's, um, he's very benign. God didn't want the Israelites to think this way. And so he gave them these ceremonies to underscore the seriousness of sin. Sin is a horrible thing. And as I've said before, what's the purpose of all this blood flowing? What's the purpose of all these animals dying? So people will know that sin is horrible. Not any fun killing an animal for the purposes of a sacrifice. In Romans 6.23 it says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And that's what God is trying to get these people to see and to understand. This of course primarily refers to the second death. But physical death that comes to us all symbolizes yet the second death. We all must pass through that first gate of physical death. But if we follow Christ, we do not need to face that second gate of eternal death. And that's eternal separation, living conscious separation, not annihilation, as some would like to believe. So physical death resulted in ritual impurity for those in contact with the, with the dead body. By carrying out this process of ritual cleansing, people were reinforcing their statement that I believe what God has said. That's what they're doing. They're reinforcing God in their lives. They're walking in obedience because he has given these things that they can do to demonstrate their obedience. Now you and I have many things we can do to demonstrate our obedience too, particularly because we have the New Testament explanation of the Old. Now the ritual consisted of taking some of the ashes of this red heifer that had been stored in a little cave or hole in the ground or whatever outside the camp and mixing those ashes with water. And then that mixture would be sprinkled on the defiled persons or the defiled objects on the third day and on the seventh day. And we could say, why the third? Why not the second or the first or the fourth? Because God ordained the third. And he doesn't say here, with a little you know, explanation, because the third day represents the Trinity or something like that. You know, People who are into numerology can read all kinds of things in here. 
You know, is that it? Is, could it be the third day because that represents the Trinity? Well, that's possible, but he doesn't say so here. It's because that's what God said. You know, if, if we try to rationalize everything God says, why does God say this? Why does God say that uh, thou shalt not kill or, or thou shalt not steal? Or why does God say that? Well, because he knows best. And there's points at which we don't have to know why. How can we know everything that the sovereign God knows? We can't. Ours is but to trust and obey. Those who didn't believe what God had commanded here and therefore ignored this ritual exhibited what? A heart of unbelief. That is really critical to understand. It is for this that they were cut off from their people. It wasn't the lack of performing the ritual per se. It's not that because a drop of that water comes on you, you're all okay, or a water, drop of that water doesn't come on you, you're not okay. It's because if you don't carry out the ritual, you are saying, I don't care, I don't believe, whatever. You're being disobedient, that person was being disobedient. And so he is condemned not because a certain number of drops of water with ash didn't fall on him. He's being condemned because of faithless disobedience. The importance of this ritual was highlighted, underscored, emphasized by the pronouncement that we read in verse 13, that anyone who does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of God. This is no small thing. You don't just defile yourself, you're defiling the tabernacle of God. God, th this is something that I think we all know, and, but we just need to keep being reminded of it because we live in a society where if we're not paying attention, we're going to be just like the frog you've heard about many times, you know, put in the water and you turn the heat on, the frog won't jump as long as the water just gets hot gradually and then it'll boil to death. And that'll happen to us if we just sit in this society and say, well, you know, yeah, it's okay. It's not all that bad. And it keeps going up by increments. But if we were to make one big jump, you know, the frog would be out of that pot and we'd be out of here too. God does not tolerate blatant disobedience amongst his people, period. He does not tolerate it. And the reason is not only because he is a holy God, the reason is because blatant disobedience is a spiritual cancer. It is cancer. Just think about it. When sin is tolerated in a group, it spreads. Others will say, well, he did it and it was okay. She did it and it was okay, so it must be okay for me. And that's how it spreads. And it spreads so quickly and so easily. If disobedience is tolerated, it will kill the body because it is a cancer. What body would it kill? Well, in Israel's case, it would kill Israel as God's chosen people. And you read ahead. <laughs> read the story ahead. I, I'm sure you all have. You know, Joshua, they're a conquering people. In Judges, they are a bunch of yo-yos, you know? They're up walking in obedience, and then they're down in disobedience, then they're up in obedience, and usually they're in obedience because God brought the whip and finally sent a judge in there to, to lead them aright. 
And then you get into Samuel and they're belly aching about the fact they don't have a king and they're not like the uh, people. So God finally says, Samuel, give them a king. He gives them Saul. And you know what happens with Saul. I mean, Saul looks like a good guy and he turns out to be a jerk. Then he gives him David. And you go on down to the kings and you read the story of the kings. You know, there are 20 kings in, in the southern kingdom. There are 19 kings in the, in the northern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, zero. Read it. Zero did right in the eyes of God. Zero kings out of 19 in the northern kingdom did right in the eyes of God. Southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was, where the temple was, where David had big king first, there were five out of 20 who did right in the sight of God. You know? So the percentages were not too high of obedient kings. And, and, and so God sends them all these prophets. And then finally you have the 400 silent years, you know, kind of Things die out with Malachi, and they pick up again with Matthew or Mark. And what goes on in between? Well, Daniel prophesies about it, and it's pretty bad stuff, which happens in there. Because the cancer spread. And in our case today, the body that will be killed is the local church. The local church, which tolerates sin in its midst, will die. It will not accomplish God's purpose. Oh, it might still exist as a building and as a as a congregation of people, but as far as God's concerned, it's dead. And we have a lot of those churches in America today. Once they were alive and now they are dead. They rot, they stink. You and I may not have to worry about this ritual of the red heifer. I don't have to worry about going out and having a heifer killed and sprinkling some ash water on me with uh, hyssop. And you and I do not have to be concerned about the many other rituals God gave to Israel. But Obedience to God is the key issue today as it was then. The bottom line is unchanged. The bottom line is unchanged. And if any place the church goes awry, it's at that point, that bottom line, the point of obedience to God. We have the entire Word of God. These people did it. Moses was just writing the Pentateuch at this time. They might have had Job as a, as, you know, story going around. We, we don't really know. But they didn't have anything else. But you and I have Genesis through Revelation. We have the whole story from paradise lost to paradise regained. We see the whole thing. We have no excuse. Israel had no excuse because God said, do this, do this, do this, do this. And this is how you take care of sin and ritual uncleanness and all of this. So they had no excuse. We have no excuse. It's the way God makes it clear. Churches today, which tolerate blatant disobedience, become defiled and are no longer useful to the kingdom of God. And as I was thinking of that thought, you know, you're well aware, of course, of the second and third chapters of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches. And the one that really came to mind here is um, the letter to the church at Pergamum, which is Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. As you know, John was uh, exiled on the island of uh, Patmos. And while he was there, the Spirit of God came to him. Jesus Christ appeared to him and uh, said, These are the things you're to write to the seven churches. John apparently was sort of a circuit-riding preacher, living probably in Ephesus and traveling to the other churches and ministering to them. And so this was not an unusual thing for him to write these letters. But what they say is, of course, what's of great importance here. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the 
sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the, way, in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. It's really a fascinating study to study these seven churches in detail. But one of the things you note about these, every single time it says, to him who overcomes. This is talking about perseverance in faith. This is talking about obedience. This is not talking about the one who, as our pastor has said on more than one occasion recently, who joins the church and, and becomes saved for fire insurance. They don't want to go to hell because that sounds pretty bad, so they'll get saved. But at the same time, they don't want to walk in obedience to Scripture because that is not pleasing to the flesh. The Scripture makes it clear there is no such thing as fire insurance. You can't just get saved so you won't go to hell and then live how, however you like. Because to him who overcomes will be given this. Perseverance. The last letter of, of Calvin's tulip. Perseverance. Perseverance proves the reality of salvation. He who does not persevere demonstrates the unreality of any commitment that supposedly was made. But in this particular passage we find two major areas of disobedience. Idolatry, antinomianism. Now, you and I have not yet come to the story of Balaam and Balak. That comes in about two chapters. We're close to it here in uh, Numbers. So I'm not going to go into all the, uh, the details of that now, except to say that the purpose of Balak trying to hire Balaam to curse Israel was to destroy Israel as a threat to, to Moab. The church at Pergamum didn't have Balaam. Balaam didn't come back to life and, you know, go teach there in, uh, in Pergamum. But, but what is being said is that there were people in the church. Now, this isn't somebody outside the church yelling through the window. This is somebody who is a member of the church or group within the church who were teaching what Balaam told Balak he ought to do to destroy Israel. Because, you know, Balaam wanted to curse Israel, and God said, you're a dead man, you curse Israel. So Balaam basically, well, I can't curse, curse Israel, but Balak, this is what you can do. You can go over and seduce them with immorality and idolatry. Well, that's what Balak did, and to a measure of success. So what we're talking about here is that there were people in the church who were teaching that sacrificing to other gods and practicing related immorality. Now you go back, it, it tells you here in this verse that Satan's throne was there. And you may remember that last summer when we came back from Europe, I mentioned the fact that in Berlin, the Pergamum Museum, which is named for this city, there's the huge altar to Zeus. 
which was transported from Pergamum to Berlin in the 19th century and rebuilt. I mean, this thing is monstrous. It would not fit in our sanctuary. And that was just one. There were numerous temples to pagan deities in Pergamum. Now, Pergamon had been an independent city for quite a while. It had, it had one of the largest libraries in the ancient world. It was, a, it was a very arrogant city. It worshipped everything. And so what we're talking about is that there were people in the church who had supposedly become converted who still believed that you need to hedge your bets and be sure you please all the gods. So it's okay. Sacrifice to this god, sacrifice to this god, but, but you know, be a Christian too. And, you know, little ritual prostitution over here, that's okay, it makes that God happy, and, you know, God shouldn't care about that. I mean, Yahweh shouldn't care about that. And, you know, that all of this should be acceptable within the umbrella of the church. Now, does that sound like any churches you know of in America today? Yeah, I think so. After all, it's important to keep all the gods happy. The Nicolaitans were apparently a sect within the church that preached antinomianism. Antinomianism, anti means against, nomos means the law, against the law. It doesn't mean that they said it was okay to go out and, you know, do 50, 65 in a 55 mile an hour zone. They were, they were people who believed that Christian liberty nullified the moral law. We are free in Christ. Christ, you know, if Christ has set us free, we're free. Do whatever. It doesn't matter. And antinomianism was, was a characteristic that was part of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a, is, is a philosophy that can be not only in Christianity, but in almost any religion, you can have a Gnostic element where everything is in the mind. Well, Christian science today is a, is a modern Christian example of Gnosticism. And that what is of the mind, what is of the spirit is real and eternal and matters. What's of the flesh is bad and, and evil, and it doesn't really matter what you do in the flesh because flesh is bad anyway. You know, can't do anything that's good. Well, Paul does say in our flesh, we can't do any good thing. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit of God can't do good things in our flesh, because he very much can. But what, what they're teaching was that as long as your mind is towards God, what you do with your body doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. So if you're practicing ritual prostitution over there, God doesn't care because your mind is, is right with him. What you do with your body doesn't make any difference. The problem with that is, is that it's false. Is heresy. It is not what Scripture teaches. The Scripture makes it very clear how important it is what we do with our bodies. James tell us, tells us that if we have true faith, we will have good works, not in our minds, but in our bodies to prove the reality of our faith. I can think good thoughts about every one of you, but what good does that do you? You know, if I don't do anything about it. Paul informs us that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his, for his deeds in the body. It doesn't say in the mind or the spirit. According to what he has done, whether good or bad, the Gnostics are totally off the wall. They, are, first of all, aren't even believers, true believers. But they've got it all backwards. And of course, Gnostics usually came in two flavors. Those who felt like you deny the flesh because it's bad, so you, you punish it, you deny it, you don't eat right, you don't sleep right, you lie in a bed of nails or whatever. Uh, the other is that you just indulge the flesh. Do whatever you feel like, which is kind of the way our culture has gone. And that, that's okay too. Well, I think all of us are maybe brought to mind what uh, Paul says in Romans 13. 
In Romans 13, beginning at verse 11, Paul says this to the church at Rome, which had its problems too, as you may know. It was a great center of paganism too. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Well, antinomians make all the provision in the world for the flesh. It doesn't matter what you do in the flesh, so go do it. It's like throwing the door wide open. It's like somebody who is really hungry and is a chocolate-holic and they're sitting down at a table and somebody puts a box of C's candy in front of them, you know? And then says, now, now, don't touch. Deny the flesh. And what happened to the church at Pergamum? It disappeared. There is no church at Pergamum. There's no Pergamum today as a city as such. God came and God took it just as he did the candlestick at Ephesus. He ripped the candlestick out because they left their first, first love and they would not return to it. And so he did at Pergamum. Blatant disobedience will not be tolerated. God doesn't say, well, I need these people. I need this church to be a little bit of a light, a little glimmer over here, so I'll let it go. He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He doesn't need some little twinkle over here and, and tolerate all this garbage in order to get it. No, he doesn't need that. When blatant disobedience was tolerated in Israel, the tabernacle or the temple of God was desecrated. Communion with God and the blessings of God were cut off. You know how it is when you have been and I'm sure everybody in this room can admit to it at some point not too long ago. When you have been blatantly disobedient, do you feel real close to God? And like you can just sing great songs of communion with God. Not unless you've gotten on your knees, at least in your heart, and said, Oh, God, cleanse me from this unrighteousness. If, they, if a person isn't convicted of that, then there's something powerfully wrong. Powerfully wrong. Today, when disobedience is ignored or whitewashed, or when the church redefines disobedience, God's blessings are cut off. And that's what's happening. Many churches are redefining disobedience. Claiming that the church couldn't possibly, I mean, the scripture couldn't possibly mean that it would condemn a lifestyle or an attitude or actions that had become widely accepted as the norm within our society in modern, sophisticated America. If it's accepted within modern, sophisticated America, God's got to accept it after all. God's evolving, right? Well, as I quoted in my prayer this morning, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness. He is immutable. He is unchanging. The God of Genesis is the God of Revelation. The God of Numbers and Leviticus is the God of John and Romans. He's no different. He is the same. And we can't out-evolve him. In fact, the human race isn't evolving. It's devolving, as you well know. And this country is leading the way. It's happening with frightening speed. God condemns lifestyles and God hasn't changed. 
Just because America says, yeah, it's okay to do a certain thing, and, and we're wrong to claim that if true love's involved, it's wrong to, to have a certain relationship. God has not changed. You know, even things like premarital sex, which is even, you know, it's a pervasive thing even within the church. God has not changed. It is wrong. It always has been. It always will be. It'll never be any different. And when we become involved, we have to acknowledge that we have sinned, and if we don't, there is no right walk with God, and He will not tolerate that disobedience. There will be no fellowship. There will be no joy. There will be no peace. His kingdom will be advanced some other way through someone else, and we will be the losers. And that's what God is saying, and that's what God is doing through the red heifer. That's what God is doing through all these different sacrifices. He's trying to get Israel to the place of realizing that obedience is the best way. You will not only feel clean, you will be clean. In the eyes of God Almighty. Well, I was hoping to finish this chapter, but I got too much into preaching here. Um, anyway, next Sunday we'll finish the chapter. We'll move on to the 20th chapter of Numbers, where we come to the death of Moses' two great siblings. Aaron and Miriam will both die, and Moses will stand alone, as it were.